Welcome to Access Control, a podcast providing practical security advice for startups. Advice from people who've been there. Each episode, we'll interview a leader in their field and learn best practices and practical tips for securing your org. For today's episode, I'll be interviewing Donnie Hasseltine, CISO at Xeon Partners and CEO at Team Passwords and Team ID. All right, thanks for joining us today, Donnie. To kick it off, can you just tell me how you got into the security practice? Yeah, thanks, Ben. Uh, it's great to be here. So um, yeah, I started getting into uh, cybersecurity uh, as a military officer. Uh, and even though I was an infantry officer, which is generally viewed as a little less technical role, um, as I led larger units and formations, uh, I could certainly see that cyber warfare was kind of a critical part of my mission and taking care of my team. And I think personally, I've always been an intellectually curious person. And, you know, like when you start seeing, you know, everything kind of explode across the Internet, I, I was kind of getting frustrated because I knew I could order anything I wanted on the internet, right? And I could do anything I wanted, but uh, I didn't really understand what was really happening when I clicked that buy button or or clicked things on there. So, you know, my final tour in the Marine Corps, I got stationed in Silicon Valley. I began interacting with startups, military innovation groups like the Defense Entrepreneurs Forum. I saw the forming of the Defense Innovation Unit. I got involved in Stanford's uh, Hacking for Defense class. And I think these experiences all kind of highlight the importance of cybersecurity. And from there, I ended up... uh, applying to uh, Brown University's Executive Master in Cybersecurity. And uh, that that program was a really great program for me. It lined up with my interest and its format allowed me to do it while I was still in active duty. And uh, you know, through there, I met Xenon's founder, Jonathan Siegel, and when I decided to retire from the Marine Corps. Is there any division between the different services, between like Air Force, the Marines, the Navy, as far as where cyber lives? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. You know, organizationally in, in the DOD, you know, you have the the and I'm going to try to just simplify it for, for those who aren't familiar with the, with the bureaucracy there, but basically headquarters and the joint commands like U.S. Cybercom. U.S. Cybercom is basically the central command for all cyber operations in, in the U.S. military. Mm-hmm. And each service has a component of that. So within Cybercom, you have Air Force Cyber, you have Navy Cyber, which is 10th Fleet, you have Army Cyber, and you have Mar 4 Cyber. And so what you end up happening is, is there's a comp- there are parts of that that the services keep for them, themselves to help control their networks and do the service specific things, but they also give cyber practitioners to the joint community that really solve cyber offense and defensive problems really across the entire uh, military enterprise. Um, They each do it a little differently as far as how they train individuals and how they bring people in. But the whole point is, is once you kind of enter that community, especially nowadays, you're going to interface much more with the other services um, and because you're going to probably have more of a joint mission that kind of cuts across service lines. Yeah. Thank you for your service. And do you have any tips for any other veterans who are looking to get into sort of cybersecurity once they leave the force? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think, you know, cybersecurity is a great industry for veterans to transition to. So I I highly encourage those who have an interest in it to kind of explore it. I would say that um, for those that are actually doing cybersecurity in the military, they're probably, they probably don't need my advice, right? Because I think that um, they'll be pretty well set up to transition the industry. There's always a need for skilled cyber practitioners. It's a high demand. Um, so guys like that and gals like that, uh, they're, they're going to have contacts and be able to transition well. But I think from my perspective, I did more of a pivot, like I said, from ground combat arms to cybersecurity. So that's a pretty significant pivot. And for veterans who are trying to do that, it's a little harder. But, but I would say that it's important to realize they already have the, the basic tools and the right instincts. Um, you know, when I first got in the industry through my grad school program, I was struck that when I interfaced with cyber professionals, they, they thought like my infantry Marines. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is their first thought when they see something, when you give something to them, their very first thought is, I can break that. 
I can get around that. And I think that's really the essence of a hacker. It's someone who's always going to find a way in and a way around things. So I, I think that if you kind of double down on that instinct that we try to teach people in the military, that's a great starting point. And I think that the next piece I'd say is, you know, the military tends to breed generalists, kind of Jack and Jill's of all trades, where the industry tends to look at specialists. But what the military tends to get right is, is leadership and people really well. So again, focus on those instincts of getting around obstacles, focus on people. And then from there, understand that the industry really looks at experience, certifications, and education in that order. While you're still in, start working to improve your education and certification before you leave the service. And that way you can find an entry point in and then kind of grow your planet and kind of come, back, come back up. Uh, if you're open, you keep learning, you immerse yourself, uh, you're going to do very well in the cybersecurity community. And I think the last thing I would say is just understand it's it's super extensive industry. So uh, just be aware of an imposter syndrome. I think everybody in the industry tends to have it. Uh, some of the best CISOs and practitioners I know have it. Just understand that as you get smarter, you get more aware of what you don't know. But but understand that if you immerse yourself, you're going to keep learning and you're going to get very, very uh, capable very quickly. Cool. Thank you. That's some great advice. So you've been working as a CISO for Xeon Partners for two years. Can you just tell me a little bit about what Xeon does? Yeah, sure. Uh, Xenon is a uh, is a tech private equity team, and it focuses and buys and operates B two B SaaS companies. So, what's kind of unique about Xenon is we tend to look for distressed assets. In some cases, that can be a company that's really on the verge of going into business. It could also be a decent company that's a VC fallen angel. The growth is flat, and it just hasn't gotten the uh, the growth that the, the initial investors were looking at. Uh, and sometimes it's a case where a founder has been running really hard and kind of wants to take a break or wants to do something a little different. Mm -hmm. So um, I mean, not all of them are like, they're, they're, none of them are bad companies. I don't mean that by distress, but there's something that's preventing them from kind of going to the next level. So we look for those that companies that have a solid product, have recurring revenue, but may have those gaps in operations and marketing where, where our expertise can come in and drive growth. You know, uh, one of the things we jokingly say within Xenon is we kind of refer to ourselves as mad scientists uh, running a pirate ship. You know, which is kind of a crazy imagery, but but the point I like to make about it is like, we, we sail around, we find treasure in unlikely places, we find things that are passed over by more traditional VC and P firms, and then we have a from the the crazy standpoint, we, we tend to have a very high risk tolerance for trying new things, but at the same time, we try to be scientists about it and try to be data driven to make sure we're making the right calls. So we will we will do some crazy crazy ideas and and uh, and do some crazy experiments, but but only if we can like track the data and make some degree of intelligent judgment on, on where we're going from there. Can you tell me about like, what's the first thing you do once you've acquired a, a startup? Yeah, I mean, honestly, we, we try to do this ideally on the security side, we try to hit this pre-close actually. So, you know, what we really wanna do is like in those initial conversations with the company, we try to frame what the risks are and then really dig into them during the due diligence phase. You know, even if we don't have a solution, you know, to paraphrase the former Secretary of Defense, Don Rumsfeld, you know, you would say the known knowns, like we want to eliminate as many unknown unknowns that exist. In other words, anything that we know, we don't know, we don't know. So if we can get a clear picture on what we know and what we don't know, that really helps us kind of frame how we need to approach this. Uh, the other piece is, you know, Xenon takes a very hands-on operational approach. Um, so unlike some due diligence phases where you kind of just learn the company and you hand over the keys and start running, we try to like do a running handoff. So during the due diligence phase, we want to work with the founders, we want to slowly integrate our team uh, and start running the business actually. So that when the deal fully closes, we're actually already running and sprinting. Uh, on the security side, we try to get the basics working if they're not in place already. 
We start addressing any critical concerns with the way the company is run from a security standpoint. Uh, and then we kind of implement our base cybersecurity plan and start building off that framework. And in some cases, you know, companies are are a little more mature in the security range. And in those cases, we try to take what they've done and really build off that um, and just make sure that we're taking off our best practices. Go through that sort of transitional phase of like operating the company while you're still going through the acquisition stage, um, as far as like getting access to all of the systems. Yeah. So that's... um. Uh, to, to, look, to be to be fair, any due diligence phase is super uncomfortable, right? It's it's kind of like a root canal. We, we try to make it easy, but that's one of the things we try to discuss in that initial framing conversation of like, this is how we approach it. We're going to want to start doing things. So once the diligence phase starts, obviously, you know, we sign uh, NDAs and agreements, which allow us to kind of exchange information on that. And we try to get access to those things. And most of the time when we're, we try to be super transparent with the founders and, and the leaders of those companies. And once we explain that, um, and once we step past and sign the LOI, um, we usually have a pretty good track record of kind of getting access to what we need to and working together. And, and honestly, if, if there's stuff that they're uncomfortable with, we work around that. We say, okay, let's box that off. Um, let's have a conversation about it again so we know what's there. But if it's something that they don't want to quite, you know, fully hand over the keys to that area, we just kind of mark that off as like, if we can nail down what we think the risks are here and whether we need to be concerned about it, that will be something we kind of hit on uh, post-close. Yeah. And then once at the close of Jin's acquisition, what's the biggest thing that you often need to fix from a security perspective? You know, I, th- I think you know, the biggest thing you see acquire startups is, is and this isn't all in, but, but I think there tends to be a general lack of knowledge of just basic security hygiene and where their risks lie in the company. Uh, and, you know, sometimes that, that comes up where we even talk to the, the founders and owners and say, like, did, did you guys realize this was going on? Uh, and we, we've, we've sometimes stumbled upon things that they didn't even know it was out there. So I think that, you know, and this isn't a, a slight, a lot of times with startups, you know, you're highly focused on nailing on the product, you're highly focused on product market fit, and you're really trying to drive revenue that everyone is looking at you for. So you tend to sometimes just put off the security stuff unless it's really emergent or, or tied to your product. So really helping the former team understand, helping us understand how security fits in the life cycle of the products and the life cycle of their customers. It's, it really is no longer something that can be a subunit of the business. It can be an existential risk that really touches it in everything that, it, that a company does. So um, that's probably the biggest thing is just what's their level of knowledge and understanding of how it fits in their life cycle and what can we do to, um, to make sure we're dialing in on those risks and make sure we're, we're, you know, we're, we're addressing them. Yeah. And do you have like a standard checklist you sort of go through and yeah, certainly. So, you know, one of the things we, we tend to do, I mean, there's, there's hundreds of frameworks and things out there for cybersecurity. Um, we tend to use cloud security alliances, uh, consensus assessments initiative questionnaire, the CAIQ. Uh, sometimes people say cake. Um, it's a great um, checklist. I mean, there's plenty of checklists and, and, and frameworks out there. We like that it maps pretty well across all of the different standards, whether SOC 2 or ISO 2701. Um, or some of the privacy regulations like GDPR. Mm-hmm. So we kind of use that as a checklist very quickly to say, like, what are you doing and not doing? Um, and that's kind of what we base a lot of our cybersecurity plans off of. Because what we eventually want to do is, you know, get them to, even if they're not ready to dump, jump into a third-party audit like a SOC 2, uh, to self-certify to Cloud Security Alliance and get that questionnaire up. So uh, it really helps the conversation with customers uh, who have a security questions with the company. So now you've sort of settled in, you've made the transition. Um, what does the normal day-to-day look like as a CISO of this organization? 
I, I, well, geez, man, I'd say, first of all, if you ask any assistant, they probably say there's no such thing as a normal day for a CISO. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, you know, I, I can boil down my day-to-day tasks, recurring tasks in a few areas. You know, the, the first one is kind of just what I call mowing the lawn, right? It's just looking across the portfolio and the companies and the fund and and keeping the hygiene up, checking the status of training, engaging teammates, touching base, the general managers and directors of operations, and kind of just ensuring follow through on our policies. So, you know, just maintaining that this, the stuff we put in place is still in effect and is still moving along and there's no problems with it. Um, stepping past that, uh, there's a little bit of proactive work where, you know, you're constantly kind of keeping your ears open for uh, to assess risks across the portfolio. You know, our, our weekly meetings, a lot of times we'll, we'll do an experiment or we'll try something new. And just being able to listen to that and say, okay, what what are my security concerns when when a GM talks about that? And then can I have a conversation with them to kind of flesh that out before we go through with something that could open a door we're not expecting? Yeah. And do you have any example of something kind of specific? I don't know of any specifics that I would, I would want to go into right now. But I think sometimes, you know, when we talk about um, changes to the products or we're going to do a, a new uh, update or a uh, feature that we want to add into you know, sometimes we'll have customers that we'll have conversation with. We really want this feature um, because generally because it's a convenience issue. Yeah. Um, and that's a tr- the trick, right, is, is security and convenience are almost two polar opposites. And you're trying to kind of run that rheostat uh, on that sliding scale there. So a lot of times we come up with a good feature that, that customers like and we think we can do. But we don't always think about what are the, the second, third order consequences of that of that feature. So part of my goal is kind of keep my ears open and kind of ask those questions um, so we can kind of be, be prepared to um, to kind of close off those gaps before they happen. You know, the uh, the other things I'd say I do is there's a certainly a reactive work where you're checking industry alerts, checking the recent CVs that are published, handling patch manage, management across the companies. And that's just not only for our company devices, but also personal devices, right? I don't want, um, even if, an employee has a personal device that doesn't touch a company network, I want to make sure they're aware of patches and concerns for that device because it does no good if um, our our employees have have insecure devices that could jump over into our network. Yeah. And, and also, I just say, like, that's also a morale issue, right? Like, you don't want an employee who is super secure on the business side, but then he just makes a small mistake in the personal side and gets his bank account wiped out. Like, that affects morale. That affects teamwork. So we want to make sure we're taking care of them, you know. Do you use anything for device management at all? Um, it, it depends on the company. Some companies are, are pretty pretty mature on that. You know, we use uh, all of our companies use G Suite. So for the ones that are on the low end of the security maturity side, we tend to use the the MDM tools that exist in, in Google Workspace. Uh, and then when you get to the higher ones, there's some different products that we'll sometimes use uh, for the more mature companies out there. And um, you know, and I think that. The other thing I would say I'm just thinking of that you know we tend to do too is when you talk about some of the smaller companies, a lot of times they don't have a full security team. And so another piece that I do across Xenon is is really work the sales angle where you know when customers of our companies ask about security, I want to step in and kind of coach our sales uh, teams to understand how the security is architected. And also have conversation with the customers to understand the use case, but also explain why that company within our portfolio is the right and secure solution for them. So that's kind of the external facing kind of role where there's there's a sales side to security, which I think we sometimes we forget about or or some CISOs just don't have that have to deal with that, you know? Yeah, I know it goes beyond just the standard security questionnaire to right, right. Uh, the more in-depth question. So Obviously, having a CISO is kind of a luxury for most startups. At what point would you say a startup would need a CISO? 
Yeah, you know, that's a great point. Um, first of all, there's there's a cost associated with that, right? I mean, I think that in some ways, every, every startup needs a CISO, but in the early days before you're going to hire someone, I think that, you know, getting the basic cyber hygiene right is is key. And one way to do that, uh, one of the first recommendations I say is, look, just put somebody in charge of security. Like, put that in the job title as somebody. Yeah. Maybe it's your CTO, maybe it's a software engineer, but but just pick one guy and say, or gal and say like, look, you're gonna be our security person. Maybe we're gonna pay you a little more, maybe we'll do something else, but like, we want you to be our security point of contact. We're gonna empower you and kind of go across that. And I think the other thing you can do really well especially in a startup role where a lot of times everyone is pitching in together is, look, make, every, make security part of everyone's role. Um, you know, one great idea I've seen used in the industry is where one security team realized he couldn't cover all the, all the parts of the company. So he went in and picked an individual with every single business unit in the company and kind of empowered them as kind of like the security person and kind of communicated information to them and kind of work with their boss. So, just kind of creating that culture where security is just thought of in your day-to-day affairs is, is a huge, huge step in the right direction. But as you mature, you know, as you start talking about a broader infrastructure, as you start talking about getting third-party audits like SOC 2, you know, that's when you probably really start needing to considering um, having a CISO on your team. How experienced or what their backgrounds are can depend a little bit on your, your product and your company. Yep. And I think that um, it's a little bit of a subjective call to be, to, to be frank. You know, if you get a uh, flush of funding early on, then then yeah, maybe if you can afford it, jump, get a CISO in early and, and start building infrastructure early. But if it's something you can't do, put somebody in charge of security and then start building that security culture where people are at least asking those questions and bringing them up in, in your day-to-day meetings. Yeah, I like the point of, you know, assigning one person because, you know, they say the fastest way to starve a horse is to assign two people to feed it. Exactly. Exactly. Someone's got to have that as a responsibility. And it's got to be in the job description. It's got to be like, we all know, like, like Ben's our security guy until we, until we get more people in Ben's our security guy. And that really helps, yeah. you know, it's a very clear. And then like I said, they don't have questions. They can escalate it or talk about it, but at least it's one person. Exactly. Exactly. You've also recently taken on the role as a CEO at team password, which is one mm-hmm. of the acquired companies. Can you just tell me a bit about this product and what problems it solves? Yeah, so Team Password is a password manager, and uh, you know, password management is a pretty critical tool for not just business, but I'd say individuals, right? It's really a must-have as long as we're going to have passwords. Uh, the big benefits, I'd say this isn't just Team Password, this is any password manager, is they tend to do things that humans are poor at, right? Generating and remembering long, complex, unique passwords for every site. You don't want to reuse passwords, and you want to make them long and complex, and, and that's we're just not wired to think like that. You know, password managers safeguard, encrypt, and protect your data. They're available to teammates on multiple devices, so you don't have to carry books around or notes around or use another insecure shared document. Um, the other nice thing about password managers, I think people sometimes forget, is they help prevent you using passwords in the wrong places, and and that can also be a final catch against a phishing attack. Like, let's say you know a really good fish hits a, hits an employee, he or she clicks on that link. They go to a, a website that's uh, a credential harvesting website. Um, a password manager is going to notice that that URL and that that link are, may look may look close to a human enough that it passes muster, but a password manager is going to say that's not the right password. It's not going to let you autofill. So things like that are really helpful to have cues to say, wait a second, maybe I need to dig a little a little deeper in that. You know, um, Team Password specifically is is a small password manager, um, but what we love about it is it's it's super intuitive. It's super simple. It's straightforward. 
So it may not have all these different bells and whistles you get with some of the larger ones out there. It's great where if you already know password managers, it's super easy to adopt. And I'd say if you've never used a password manager before, it's a great start point because, you know, we had a company the other day where I would say it took us maybe 20 minutes to uh, a 20 minute call to get them online, get their entire team onboarded organize our groups and then take the old spreadsheet they had with passwords and get that imported securely into the device and get them up and running so they were using it uh, really on the on, on the day one. Yeah, so your main competitors are sort of post-it notes and spreadsheets. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of scary, you know, especially if you're in the IT industry and cybersecurity, you tend to make the assumption that everyone's using a password manager. But, you know, the more we talk to customers, I mean, I think there have been studies about this that show that, you know, like less than a third of businesses and, and individuals are using password managers, right? So it's it's really uh, interesting when you talk to them and I say like, what are you using now to manage passwords? And it's uh, it's generally not an ideal solution, right? And I think I, I've actually told some customers like, look, even if you don't go with us, just please use a password manager. Please, please shift on it because it makes everybody safer when you're using, you know, secure authentication. Yeah. You know, and there's this kind of movement in the industry for people on the more cutting edge is like to move to like passwordless systems. Right. Um, yeah. So what's your thoughts on sort of where passwords are sort of going or disappearing? Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately, look, that's passwordless is where the industry's headed and it's where it should be headed. And I mean, I know that's odd coming from someone who manages who runs a password manager to say we, we need to go away from passwords. Right. But from a cybersecurity perspective, that's the right call. Passwords are almost always the weakest part of the authentication chain and the weakest link in that process. So I think everyone should be striving for that passwordless solution. There, there's some challenge with that. And, and a lot of them go with technical implementation and cost, right? Is um, if you talk about multi-factor authentication, multi-factors generally are the factors you talk about are things you know, which are passwords, things you have, which are devices or tokens, and things you are, which are like biometric data. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, you know, your second check uh, from a password login is that multi-factor, like, okay, I'm going to send a one-time password to Google Authenticate or your phone just to give you another check to, to make sure it's you. So when you get in a password list, you just take away the password, right, of that. So you're still using factors of biometrics, using factors of tokens and things like that, and you're using usually some degree of public key cryptography to authenticate. But what's also interesting is it starts to pull in a lot more behavioral data and metadata which on the company side usually can be done, especially if you have a mature mature system with logging and things like that and all, and you've got a lot of you know, CM data, security, and incident data you can draw from. But it, there's also some privacy concerns really come with that. Not, not to go deep into that, but to get passwords to work well, you're pulling in a lot of other information. Like, so for example, you know, a properly architected passwordless solution is gonna really achieve a great balance between security and convenience. To the user, it's going to be super convenient, but to the back end, it's going to be super highly secure, right? Yep. So if you think about this, it's like the system is then looking and comparing data. So it says, someone just walked through the front door using Donnie's key card. Someone just stepped into Donnie's office using his key card. Someone just logged in to the company account with a company machine with a specific MAC address that we know on the right IP address. and. Uh, Donnie's personal and his business phone are within three feet. We can verify through near field or Bluetooth of that computer. Uh, and there's even crazier stuff out there, Ben. Like I saw something the other day that looked at like, you could put sensors in office chairs and people actually sit specific ways and you can identify a person with pretty good accuracy just based off the sensors in the seat. So, you know, you start collecting all that data and then you get to a point where 
one of those things is probably not enough to say this is a safe authentication. But when you have 50 or 100 of those little check marks, you can pretty confidently say, like, let that person log in. So in a perfect world, you know, Donnie and Ben walk in their offices, they sit down, they open up their computer and then just immediately are logged into all the systems out there. And and that's really what you want to go to. And I think larger companies who are uh, who have a lot of enterprise security software and have that log and have mature cybersecurity teams are able to implement that. A smaller SMB level, it's kind of hard to do behind some, you know, basic SSO and SAML technologies, but really that's still going back to a single password entry point, you know? Yeah, yeah. I guess you do give up the kind of privacy aspect of it to some degree, which the severity of the information you have in your organization and um, everything else, you probably opt into it. Yeah, I mean, you really have to, I mean, look, if you're an employee, you're going to opt into it, yeah. right? And I think uh, the United States is a much more tolerant thing. I think in Europe, uh, with GDPR, it gets a little more challenging to figure out how to manage those privacies. What you really have to do is is take another step where you're um, you're making sure that data is anonymized. So even if um, you have all these data points, you're not tying it to a specific name, face, email, but you can still authenticate that effective cyber persona, right? You're, you're basically instructing a, a persona of the employee, uh, but just making sure that you're doing it in such a way that's not exposing their PII, right? Yeah. And, 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 but again, that's where I get into is like really doing that the right way. Um, there's, there's some, some challenging cost implementation cases right now uh, to do passwordless right. But again, I, it's definitely the right way to go. I mean, uh, take out the weakest link, you know, and, and, and find other ways that you can be confident that your, your systems are only being logged into by the right people. It sort of brings us to a good segue from recent password kind of leaks. You know, SolarWinds had like SolarWinds123 right. as their password. But yeah. then in many ways, this is like a limit of the CI CD service that they were using. They needed a password. Yeah, yeah you know, um, that's a great point. So, I mean, when you boil it down to it, like, first of all, everything tends to come with default passwords. You know, even your home Wi-Fi systems, the first thing you should do is change those to something that's that's secure. You know, if you're using the right password management systems, then you're not going to have to have employees create something like SolarWinds1234. They can create something random. But you also have to make sure that the system allows for those complex passwords, right? And uh, so there's a lot of like, you know, it's, it's very easy to go down. I think like SolarWinds is point at a single intern who actually set that password as SolarWinds1234. But there's a lot of other things that, are, that, that surround that that led up to that, that point where that was even possible, right? Yep. So a few services which can like scrape your like public or private Git repos for secrets that have yeah. been leaked. Do you have any recommendations for tools? No, off the, not off the top of my head. You know, I can dig up some and, and hand them to you to maybe post uh, post a layer for users. But I think that you know, there's a lot of open source tools out there that are pretty that are pretty good. And you know, I think in Xenon sometimes we've written our own scripts to uh, to run through. Uh, and identify like IP and other other points in there. Uh, there's a couple companies out there too. I'm blanking on right now that actually do that, where they will kind of log in and watch your GitHub repositories and just look for keys or passwords or things like that 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 shouldn't be shouldn't be out there. But you know, it's certainly worth auditing. Look, I mean, if if it does need to be a public repository, make it a private repository and secure it. You know, if you're make sure all your GitHub team, the only the right people are. You're managing role-based access control and you're using multi-factor authentication to those. Um, but if it's got to be a public one, then look, make sure you're actually reading the code to make sure that uh, you're not exposing something on there that you shouldn't be. Yeah, and I know I saw the last week actually PHP project moved to GitHub because their internal yeah. Git 
which is sort of an interesting thing. Like you don't really think of these other services. Yeah. You have to maintain them and support them. So I guess there's risks of using a third party, but also risks of not using it. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, that, that's the inevitable question that I think a lot of companies have when they when they realize they need something. Do you build it on your own and um, or do you buy it? I mean, even companies like Google will oftentimes realize it's it's cheaper and easier for them to buy it than to build it, right? And just integrate it into their system. You know, the challenge is if you you if you build it, then you've got to maintain it, right? And I think that's, you know, one of Xenon's recent acquisitions is package cloud. And that's a key pa- aspect. Look, if you're deploying software packages, you need a way to securely get that out. And um, you can build it, but then you've got to maintain it and make sure you're staying up on it and, and securing it. And then you need a kind of a whole business unit to maintain it. So a lot of times it's better to use a reputable third-party solution, but you've got to do your due diligence in that too to make sure they're doing the right things. You know, they're a reputable company there. You've got to have some degree of vendor management. Know it's out there, right? You know, I think... Not to go down the rabbit hole of third-party services, but I think you know one of the things when I looked at when I look across this you know portfolio and started interviewing GMs early on, I found like we we're using hundreds of third-party things out there, and then having to go in and like let me investigate every single one of them and ask the question, is this really necessary? Okay, we have three different companies that are all using different products that do the same thing. Can we all agree on one and use just one, and try to start lowering your attack surface down? And then also track it, right? So I know if I'm seeing, like I'm talking that reactive aspect of my job, if I see there's a potential breach or something that pops out there, can I quickly identify which of my companies is using that product and quickly jump into them to lock down any potential vulnerabilities associated with it? Marketing departments are very keen on putting random JavaScript in pages yeah. everywhere. So probably the less random JavaScript from vendors is probably better. Right, yeah. And I mean, I'll give you another example out there. You know, I, I used a... Uh, there was a company we were looking at uh, a while ago for Xenon and, um, you know, they cited several of their customers. And it was funny because one of their customers, I, I was good friends with the CISO and I reached out to the CISO and it's like, hey, you know, what do you think about this product? And, and his response was like, we're not using that product. I'm like, uh, I think you are. He's like, hold on. You know, when he went in, it's like, oh, well, a subset of one of our Salesforce teams was able to put that in their budget and buy it. But because it wasn't, you know, because of the way they had architected, like I just... The CISO didn't even know that they were using that third-party solution out there. And luckily, they were doing it the right way. It was secure. There was no issues with it. But it can be very challenging out there when you're empowering some of your business units to use third-party or open-source software, but there's not a good process to make sure it's vetted or checked so you even know that it's out there. I mean, that's that's where I say, like, you don't want to have unknown unknowns in, in the cybersecurity industry. Yeah. And so do you have a procurement process? I know this is, like, very enterprise. Yeah. Um, yeah. Often, like, when we question. sell our software it goes through a procurement department, but that's a 3,000 person organization. So it kind of seems like you're recommending smaller startups to also kind of go through some sort of initial procurement and background check prior to buying software as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, have something. Look, I mean, like, look, there's good is the enemy of great here, um, but but don't be ignorant. Like, do something. I mean, I think, uh, you know, even if you're just creating a Google Sheet, that I think that was how we started off in, in Xenon is like, I'm just gonna make a Google sheet that has every product I can find that we're using. And I'm gonna cross-reference it across companies. I'm gonna audit that with the GMs. And then I'm gonna take on board from the CISO standpoint of going in and taking a look at those companies and kind of doing the reverse, you know, third-party vetting. Yep. You know, and sometimes it's, most of these companies are reputable companies and you can go to their security page and pull their SOC 2 certificates or look at, you know, what they've done out there and kind of QC that. And I think when you start doing that, you're like, okay, I can check off these certifications. I can see how they're approaching this. I can read 
and and get the level of confidence. And in some cases, I, if there's more questions, then we reach out to them and just say, hey, can you give us more information on on this? I've actually had some people, ironically, you know, one one company reached out to be a uh, as a customer of one of our uh, companies and, and said, look, I need your compliance certificates. And I'm like, look, this is a very small company. It hasn't done a third party compliance process yet. Why do you need that? And the question, they, the answer that came back is like, well, we're going through SOC 2 right now. So we've got to prove to our auditors that it's secure. I'm like, okay, well, you don't need to have, every one of your vendors doesn't need to be SOC 2 for you to be SOC 2. How do you approach, you know, how do you how do you manage your vendors? How do you manage third party um, software? And they're like, we don't have a process for that. And it was like, okay, well, let me walk you through some things. In this case, we use the, the CIQ Lite, which is again, a quick 75 question list from uh, Cloud Security Alliance. I'm like, let me shoot this to you as a questionnaire. Take a look at it, see what questions you have, show this to your SOC 2 auditor. Uh, and then, you know, the next step is, is you probably want to implement this. So it was kind of funny where we had a customer checking our security and we ended up giving them security advice to help move forward. That's a great story. Last thing I'd like to touch on, you can I mention the recently acquired Package Cloud. And I know yeah. of the last year or so, supply chain attacks have been on the rise. Right. I think if you can describe a sort of a supply chain attack. Yeah, their uh, package cloud is, is interesting because there's a recent, we, we spoke about on the side, a dependency attack done by a white hat hacker where he found a way to basically um, take a look at the software packages that software relies on and start creating similarly named public uh, repositories. So when the software went and looked for the private repository, it would see the public one and kind of draw uh, data from there, and it gave a, a vector to kind of insert malware. So I think that supply chain attacks are pretty, they're complex, they're kind of hard to orchestrate, but they're super dangerous because what we just talked about is like, I may be a super secure company, but if one of those third-party services I'm using gets hacked, that may be an entry point into my company without me ever ever realizing it. And that was really how SolarWinds played out, right? We talked about the password compromise, which allowed the attacker which is pretty commonly believed now to be a nation state or an advanced persistent threat. Advanced because it's a it's a criminal or nation state enterprise that has a lot of uh, expertise and tool sets. Persistent that they're they've been in your system for a while. You know what they end up doing is is compromising the update uh, process for SolarWinds Orion product. So they got an update server. They were able to get into it. They were able to slide malware into the secure legitimate updates that went out. That then deployed out to anyone using that product. And that gave the hackers, um, you know, I would say the, the, the cyber criminals, because they're, they're good, good hackers out there too, right? It gave the cyber criminals uh, an ability to get into different systems that really had nothing to do yeah, with And I guess also and, everything was signed and it looked like it was a legit package. Yeah. I mean, it was a legit package. Yeah, because it was a legit package. Yeah, they, they, they got it in prior to signing. So once it went through that QA process, it was missed, it was hidden. So they had set it so their QA process was skipping those uh, those scripts. And then it was like packaged up, securely signed and launched out. And that's very different than a supply chain attack that um, releases a, a fake package with a fake signature, tries to, you know, certificate uh, tampering or otherwise get a get a false certificate in the chain. This is one that was like legitimately signed by SolarWinds before it went out. So what are sort of some techniques that detect this prior to sort of shipping out the software? Yeah, that's a that's a really hard question to get into because it's super subjective based off the product. But I think the big thing is just is really dig into your quality control uh, process. Don't don't just put that on the side on, on, on the side burner or don't uh, don't subcontract that and don't rely on just simple scripts and, and things to kind of go through and just say, yep, everything looks good. You know, you need to take the time to kind of look in the code and just make sure 
it's, it's doing exactly what you think it's doing. And there's not something that you're not expecting, right? And again, every every way you do that is a little differently, but you know, even something where you're kind of hashing sections of the code and comparing that, there's ways you can probably do that and use services to help do that. But I think that you really just got to ask yourself, like, what is my quality assurance process? Do I have one, first of all? What is it? And then how can I double down on that process to make sure that it's it's going about in, in the right fashion and really to flag things that look suspicious before you sign them and, and send them out to your customers? Yeah, that's a great overview. Obviously, there's always lots of things happening. You sort of mentioned imposter syndrome earlier. And yeah. uh, how do you sort of keep up with industry te- uh, trends and best practices? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I'd say in general, um, a combination of uh, professional uh, relationships and, and organizations, you know, on the organizations, there's there's a lot out there. First, there's like U.S. government, like U.S. CERT, the Computer Emergency Readiness Team. Uh, they release CVEs and alerts. So, you know, having a feed where you're tracking those alerts, when they come out and just reading and saying like, kind of check check whatever came out from U.S. CERT in the morning, look at it. Does that apply to my company? Yes or no? And then start working and see if we need to patch things. So you wake up in the morning and you see something. Yeah. At what point do you really need to take action? Do you, should you take action page and says there's an update for Chrome? Yeah. Should I then make sure that everyone patches their Chrome today? Because we know that this is a vulnerability in Chrome. How do you also set the importance for the team? Because uh, you don't want to kind of freak them out every day, right? You know, I, I, I talked to another guy I know who, who receives the security briefs at his company and he's like, and he's not a security guy, so he, but he, the security team works for him. And Every day he gets says, after my coffee, I'm just scared to death every morning because this comes up, right? But I think that first, you know, part of what I do is do the interpretation. I read it. First of all, are we using that software? How critical is the update? Is this just kind of a routine update? Because look, software updates all the time. And it's not always a security reason, you know, but there are some times when I look at it and say, okay, this is an update tied to a zero day that was just identified that does have exploits in the wild. That's when I say, look, everybody needs to update this today. Now, the great thing about things like Chrome is if you're using G Suite Works, uh, Google Workspace, there are ways you can kind of just push and, and force all of your all of your employees to basically update the uh, the Chrome when they open it up. Ideally, can you automate that so that I can just do that in the background before my employees, I don't have to ask my employees to do it. But if it's something else, it's really just looking at like, what's the reason for this update and how critical is the security thing? And is it a really point where every minute that this is out there, a lower severity or a lower risk, right? Um, it might be a case where we just kind of jump it out on our kind of weekly updates. Hey, here's the things you should be doing this week. But if it's, a, you know, if it's something that's like, okay, this is actually an actual threat, an actual risk right now, that's when you kind of just pop the fire alarm and kind of reach out to everyone, like everyone needs to do this right now. Yeah, and I know sometimes it's like knowing the system. Right. There was an open SSL issue. Right. That was bad, but our various processes internally didn't necessarily go in the pathway of this. So probably something that we might touch to some degree, but it's not right. going to affect it, sort of our it, customers, as it were. It's really important to look at the risk. Look, I mean, because like, you, you know, if you're going to be, you can be 100% secure, but then nothing is going to work, right? Uh, and you're going to encourage people to kind of do shadow IT and go around, go around issues. So just being able to really assess what the risk is. And look, there's times when we identify something like, this is an actual vulnerability, but the likelihood of this happening is so low that, you know, do we want to put a full stop to everything we're doing to like try to secure that one thing? Or is it a case where we're going to chalk that up as a known known? We're going to accept the risk or transfer the risk, you know, using cyber insurance. Um, or is it something that we, okay, this is something we just need to fix in the next week or next month or, you know, sometime in there. So it's, it's trying to rack and stack that based off intelligent risk to help the, yeah. 
help us help us not freak out every time. And like you said, that, you don't want the fire alarm going off all the time uh, because then people start stop listening to you. And you just mentioned cyber insurance. Yeah. Could you just tell me what is cyber insurance and yeah. should startups buy it? Yeah. So, uh, you know, cyber insurance is a um, is like regular insurance. You can get very specific on what you need covered, but it can cover you in the event of breaches up to X number of dollars per record or things like that. Because a lot of like, for example, regulatory compliances, if you have a breach, you know, like CCPA, the California Privacy Act and GDPR will assess actually a dollar amount every record that's compromised, which can go very, very quickly. So it's it's to cover you in the case of a breach that happens. Um, you can also cover if someone hacks you, you can put in against ransomware. So if there is a ransomware attack, you have one, you should be doing backups, but also you have now a monetary uh, insurance payment that can help you recover and work with customers there. Cyber insurance work like health insurance, like if you're smoking <laughs> and overweight, it's going to be more. It, or like, it probably it, it, it depends a little bit on the on the insurance company and, and the underwriter, but um, but usually you can do it. Like they're gonna, you, you have to fill out a questionnaire like anything else. But usually you can find it. It's just a question of how, again, like most insurers, how much money do you want? How much do you want? Do you want it to cover? And I'd say what you really want to look at is. Things that are a maybe a high risk but a low likelihood, those are things like a high impact and low likelihood are probably the things I would look at cyber insurance for. Like, look, if this happens, it's catastrophic, but the chance of this happening is, is super, super low. So is it cheaper just to basically have that to basically give me a back a, a backup in the case of that happening? For startups, uh, look, it's smart, but it really depends on your product too. I mean, some, some of our companies um, – just do not have the same level of risk. Like, you know, if you have a company that's handling a lot of customer data, yeah, you probably need to be thinking about that because if that's compromised or breached, you've got a real big problem on your team. But if it's something where it's like doing uh, SDK intelligence or things like that, where you're not handling uh, PII or, or health data or things like that, it may not be necessary right off the bat as a startup. Uh, brings us to the end. Thanks, Donnie, for your time today. So just to wrap it up, if you were to give one bit of security advice, what would it be? Yeah, you know, that's a that's a great point. Um, I would say that um, remember that computers are made by humans and they're used by humans. And, and the weakness is usually not the computer, it's the human. Uh, I, I don't say that as an excuse for you to blame the user, right? But I, what it means is, is kind of what we talked about is make sure you're thinking about your teams that are writing the software. Give them the tools they need. Put attention to your quality, quality assurance processes pay attention to how that code is done and put some time into looking for those vulnerabilities and solving those vulnerabilities and identifying that risk before you push that out to your customers, right? Because the computer is just going to follow the logic that it's told to do. The person that wrote that logic is, is the person you really need to focus on and make sure it's done the right way. And the second side, think about your customers, think about your users, right? Is um, Can you educate your users so that they are doing the right things, they're doing the right cyber hygiene, they're being smart about things? Are you doing things to make it easy for your customers to stay secure? So I think that's the biggest thing is like, it's very easy in cybersecurity, very caught up in the technical aspects, which are, are super interesting and fun and, and a huge part of it. But don't forget the human, like that's that's the real target and that's the real person you're trying to protect. And if you focus on that, that I think gives you a, a good perspective on how you should approach security for your company and for your team. Thanks for listening to our first episode. If you have any suggestions for guests or topics, please send an email at podcast at goteleport.com. This podcast was created by Teleport. Teleport allows engineers and security professionals to unified access for SSH servers, Kubernetes clusters, web applications and databases across all environments. To learn more, visit us at goteleport.com.